Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I'm Hussain Bashir. I'm a respiratory registrar in the Kent, Surrey, Sussex region. And this is a podcast about general medicine in association with the education department at the Royal College of Physicians. The aim of this podcast is to discuss clinical cases, demystify medicine, recap and clarify general medical topics, and we will also cover some historical facts along the way. And just as a little disclaimer, prior to the recording of these podcasts, me and Hussain have not discussed the case beforehand. Exciting. So... Uh, I'll start off with a case uh, that has actually stayed with me for the last 18 months, I would say. Um, So it's a little bit respiratory orientated, but um, I'm very much coming with a focus as you are on call, you get this referral, what are you going to do in the acute setting? Okay, sounds good. So we have a Mr. Aspin. He is 66 66 years old, and he comes in with breathlessness, which has progressively worsened over the last three weeks. He also has a productive cough, and the A&E referral uh, contains information that suggests he's wheezy, quite anxious, and probably smokes quite a bit as well. Um, they say that, you know, he's got nicotine stains on his fingers, etc. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want some observations? Yes, please. Uh, so his respiratory rate is 22 breaths per minute. Saturations are 91% on air. Blood pressure is 130 over 80. Heart rate's 100. And his temperature is 37.8. Now, that's all you've got. Just the observations uh, and the presenting complaint. Right. So what's going through your head as to why this chap's come into hospital? Okay, so he's 66 years old. He's short of breath. He's got a cough, a little bit wheezy. He's a smoker. He's a little bit tachycardic. He's got a high temperature. And he's got low oxygen saturations with a subtly increased respiratory rate. So... First of all, I would obviously, as I do in every patient, go through A, B, C, D, E. Um, After I've done that, thinking about possible causes of the presentation to hospital, the cough, the shortness of breath and the pyrexia, I'd be thinking about an infection. So does this gentleman have any past medical history of COPD? Could this be an exacerbation of that, given the fact that he's a smoker and he's wheezy? He's had a cough, progressive shortness of breath. So is this a community-acquired pneumonia? that's been sitting there for a little for a few weeks um i guess further on down the line pulmonary embolism but the cough the shortness of breath and the low oxygen saturations although to be fair that is pretty sort of way on down the list so for the time being i'm going to go for copd and pneumonia brilliant so that's pretty much exactly what the a and e team said to me okay yeah um they're suspicious of infection although he's not really febrile um, you know, the productive cough. Um, he probably does have some uh, existing lung disease given um, he probably smokes quite heavily mm-hmm. uh, and he's wheezy. So they treated him as a COPD exacerbation. Which sounds reasonable. Yeah. Um, so I actually accepted this referral, said, you know, just double check with them. Have you got him on the right treatment? Um, as usual, in an acute setting, chest x-ray has been ordered. Um, we're just waiting for it. Um, but I had been told that, you know, the chest was consistent with a COPD exacerbation. So um, added to the medical take. Uh, and then I saw him in the A&E department. Um, so actually, a lot of the uh, investigations weren't too eye-catching. So his CRP was mildly elevated, so around 50 or 60. Uh, similarly, the white cell count was around 14 or 15. 
there wasn't any signs of any liver or kidney injury. Um, however, when I saw him, uh, he wasn't very wheezy at all, actually, and, and probably hadn't had enough nebs to get rid of things given the pitch that was painted. Um, he wasn't able to lie flat. Um, he looked a little bit unkempt. Um, and despite him coming across as being a bit of a joker and talking very quickly, you know, completing sentences, etc., um, I actually realised that he was actually breathing quite shallow um, and was a little bit anxious. Okay. Does that change what you're thinking? Um, so I'm a little bit concerned about the fact that he's unkempt. So taking away from the medical aspect of things, what about his social circumstances? And does he have anybody at home to look after him? How has he been eating, drinking, looking after himself? So that is definitely a concern of mine. Secondly, you mentioned that he has difficulty when he lies down. We know that he's a smoker. We know that he um, has some shortness of breath. Could he have an element of corpulmonale? So right ventricular dysfunction due to underlying respiratory disease. Has he had any signs of um, leg edema? Um, I'd be wanting to have a look at. Um, so I am starting to get a little bit more concerned about is there something else going on, particularly the corpulmonale and his social circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, further history taking uh, by us uh, actually uh, demonstrated that he wasn't really able to walk around that much for the last three weeks. Uh, he was sleeping in his chair uh, because of the orthopnea that he had. Um, and I'll cut to the chase. So he was had a pretty much no air entry uh, or no audible breath sounds on one side. Uh, and lo and behold, his chest x-ray showed that he had uh, a significant unilateral pleural effusion. So we decided to put a chest drain in Okay. Um, and I'll, I'll come to that sort of decision-making process soon. Um, but what are you thinking with the, that kind of finding of the x-ray? So uh, with Corpomenale, I would expect him to have bilateral pleural effusions. This is purely unilateral pleural effusion. So a smoker, unkempt, low oxygen saturations. I'm really worried about malignancy. So that would be my main concern because it's a unilateral pleural effusion. Does this man have cancer? And that would be my main concern at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. So that's, you've highlighted essentially the first key learning point from this, that unilateral pleural effusions in a smoker, you have to think malignancy yeah. until proven otherwise. Or infection, potentially. So an empyema maybe, or collapse consolidation effusion due to infection is a possibility but you said that his crp wasn't that high high yep and his white cell count was subtly elevated probably want to know what his arterial blood gas showed as well yeah so see what his lactate was um po2 and pco2 but i agree i think malignancy is again top of my list yeah absolutely and i'm glad you raised the the points about infection because yes the although the the markers are slightly elevated they're not you know, barn door suggestive of one or the other. Yeah. Um, and that was actually behind my decision making to go with uh, something invasive. So okay. first of all, uh, wanting to do a plural aspirate, but also having my chest drain kit very close to hand because this is either likely one or the other. This is either, you know, severe infection, which has been brewing for the last three weeks, 
that has turned into you know a significant paraneumonic effusion um, or this is something like a malignancy so uh, we went ahead with the uh, chest drain insertion ultrasound so, guided ultrasound guided yeah. obviously and so the main guideline that uh, you uh, guys out there should look at is is the BTS guideline it's very thorough uh, comprehensive um, and the the literature that it's derived from is pretty comprehensive so and this is for the plural effusions yes, yep um so yes you want to do ultrasound guided drainage um you can use a sort of x marks the spot uh, type approach but the recommendation is that you only do this for really large effusions um certainly i would recommend having an ultrasound always there at all times uh, a bugbear of mine is also if if it's a, another department that's marking a spot just be wary that the patient does move positions to when you're actually putting the drain in. So um, it's something to be conscious of. But I, I would recommend that the best practice is to actually have the ultrasound there. Um, if you're very new to putting these things in, obviously you have to be supervised by someone who's uh, ultrasound trained as well. Um, but I'm hopeful that in most hospitals, either the acute medical unit or general medical unit will have people who are uh, suitably trained up to do that. Okay, yeah. Um, in essence, if you don't have that qualified person or, or the uh, equipment, um, there's no real emergency situation where you have to put one in. So you say if it's three in the morning and they're not compromised and you're not worried about attention pneumothorax, you can wait a little, little bit. Um, but I decided to go ahead as I thought it would be a disservice to my specialty if I didn't. <laughs> um, so anyway, we, we went ahead with the procedure and immediately um, there's sort of what looks like bloodstained fluid um, that comes out um, we ran it for a few tests so put it in a few bottles so um, very much covering what what you've discussed already so obviously we're sending it for microbiology culture and sensitivities um, just another tip is rather than just putting it in a plain bottle you can actually put it in aerobic and anaerobic yeah. bottles that you use for blood cultures uh, that's highlighted in the guidelines um, you can also send it for a pH, so putting it in a blood gas syringe. Now, this is an interesting one because there's been many occasions when I was training where I would put the uh, pleural fluid in the blood gas machine, which didn't go down very well. Yes, and and there, this is, I suppose, slightly referenced in the guidelines and that if, if it's not purulent, not pus-like, not obviously infectious... Mm-hmm but you're suspecting uh, it is a paraneumonic effusion, um, then it does recommend that you can use a pH. But if it's obviously, you know, coloured or, or if there's pus coming out, then you know it's infectious and you, you probably could get away with not doing it. Yeah, okay. Um, but if you can, um, it's useful to know the pH because this, again, guides as to whether you should put a drain in or not. And generally, the accepted value is if the pH is 7.2 or below and you're querying infection, then a drain is wise to put in um, if it's above that and you're not worried about the patient you know being compromised uh, then it's um, acceptable to sort of treat with antibiotics and see how you go however brings me on to the next point when we did the ultrasound we could see that there was a significant amount of fluid there um, I would estimated probably between two and three liters of fluid so I thought putting a drain in would also have a therapeutic absolutely benefit. yeah um, so we sent off the cultures anyway, um, did the pH. Um, just a quick mention about glucose. Generally, uh, glucose, if it's below 1.6, uh, 
Uh, this is consistent with quite a lot of effusions, actually, you know, infection, TB, etc. Um, but it can be probably more useful in rheumatological um, associated effusions if the glucose is very low. Sim okay. Similarly, uh, if you're worried about you know, a pancreatitis related effusion or a ruptured esophagus, you can also send the fluid for amylase. Um, and if you're worried about the blood stain nature, but you think you may have pranged a vessel when you were going in or it was traumatic, um, say if he had a different history, you know, was in an accident or something, and you're worried that he's got a hemothorax, um, you can compare the hematocrit in the sample that you send with the serum sample. And if it's over 50% um, in terms of the ratio of the serum, hematocrit that is indicative of a hemothorax i didn't know that um so one thing that you've probably all heard of is light criteria um i'll just summarize that briefly but in terms of i'm testing you here oh, in terms of what i've told you about the fluid um it being kind of blood-stained yeah with that history are you thinking it's a transudate effusion or an exudative effusion so, uh, transudate and exudate is basically looking at the protein content of the effusion. So, in a gentleman, unilateral, plural effusion, it was blood-stained. You think in malignancy, I'd expect it to be an exudative effusion, which is where the protein content is greater than 30 grams per deciliter. Is that your nodding? Yeah. Okay, good. And a transudate is less than 30 grams per deciliter. Yeah. And I would expect that more in cardiac failure, liver failure, renal failure. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just sort of anecdotally, I think the majority of effusions that I've seen is you can probably use that approach, mm -hmm. um, particularly if you're pretty convinced of the history uh, and what your investigations have um, sort of added to your diagnosis. Um, transudates, yes, you're right. We see more in the failures um, I always think it's a low protein count. The fluid is probably a bit more clear. It's you know, have they got heart failure? Have they got uh, kidney failure? Have they got hypoalbuminemia? Yeah, okay. And um, so it's another thing to consider with, uh, say, the unkempt, slightly emaciated person with bilateral pleural effusions. Just wonder if they're sort of nutritionally nutritionally deficient. Um, and also things like peritoneal dialysis. Just um, things to be aware of. That sometimes you can get fluid that tracks into that pleural space. Exudates, uh, you very correctly said it's, you know, malignancy, uh, paranumonic infections. Um, and you can also get this in slightly rarer causes of effusions. I haven't seen many, but PEs, uh, rheumatological associated effusions, pancreatitis. Um, and again, just to slip in another anecdote, if you get someone with an effusion and they've recently had a bypass uh, graft, that can also uh, sometimes be associated with post-operative effusions. Um, my advice from experience is speak to the cardiothoracic surgeons when that happens. Don't try and manage it medically yeah. um, because it's, you know, most likely to be associated with the surgery and the post-op complications. You've just, by talking about that, it's just reminding me of a case I saw last week. Um, I was a consultant on call in ED for last weekend and I saw Meigs syndrome. Yes. So, um, and that was a lady who had um, plural effusions, uh, worse on the right-hand side than the left-hand side. She had some ascites and she had a pelvic mass. Right. Um, and um, altogether, that sort of triad is known as Meig syndrome. Yeah. Um, and the first, the reason that we looked into her pelvis was actually because we saw the plural effusions and we couldn't think of where they were coming from. 
all her blood tests were normal, she was in her 40s, it didn't quite fit, so we thought, okay, let's have a look in the pelvis. We did a CT abdo pelvis, and that was how we found the pelvic mass. Wow. So it's sort of thinking a little bit outside the box, actually. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's all in the history, and, you know, you, you said, why, why is a 40-year-old female having pleural effusions? You know, they, they shouldn't have heart disease that, that is that bad. Um, so you've got to think about, yes, abdominal causes of it. So, yeah, interesting. You've seen it was one. really interesting. And another case, sorry, a, a few weeks before that was a lady in her 80s. And she'd been in and out of hospital with a unilateral pleural effusion. And um, she, she'd come back in again to the um, acute medical decisions unit. And I examined her, um, took a top off to have a listen to her heart. And she actually had a fungating breast mass that she hadn't reported to the on-call team previously and hadn't been picked up on prior examination and I think what this case highlighted to me was apart from the fact that breast malignancies can present with unilateral pleural effusions the importance of proper general examination yes absolutely and and the thing that's popping into my head is now malignant melanoma as well absolutely Um, and just you know it's not rocket science this is very simple and I don't mean to be coming across as patronizing but if you think if you're seeing these types of patients presenting this you have to look you have to take take the clothes, really have a good examination. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I've learned in both of those cases, actually, is to think outside the box. Um, but for those cases where it's not clear-cut, um, LIGHTS criteria, um, and this is, again, is highlighted in the BTS guidelines, uh, you need one or more features of the following. So if the plu- plural fluid protein uh, and serum ratio is above 0.5, uh, or if the pool fluid LDH um, over the serum LDH ratio is over 0.6, um, or if the pool fluid LDH is more than two-thirds of the upper limits of the lab normal value for serum LDH, uh, then you can uh, consider that that is an exudate. Um, but they're sort of more useful for if, if you've got an indeterminate or you're not so sure, um, but also particularly if you think that you've got something where you can't really trust um, the sort of the serum values because if, again if they're malnourished or whatever that might might um, give you some discrepancy so it's important to when you're sending off your samples not only sending a plural fluid sample but also your serum samples as well good um, so just one other thing uh, that I came across in the literature um, that the uh, guidelines were referencing was lymphocytosis um, so this is sometimes a common uh, comment that I see on reports uh, from the samples that I send um, and I always thought it was probably more due to malignancy uh, or an infection like TB uh, however what they've commented is that you can actually get a lymphocytosis with any long-standing effusion so this is with your heart failures or you know your, your liver failures etc so it's just something to, to bear in mind and, and something that I've learned that you know you can't you know it's all about context um, you know, take your results with the history and, and the, particularly the duration of things. Um, again, just one thing to comment uh, from practice is that if you want to send off samples for cytology, two mils, five mils is not going to cut it. You need to do at least uh, 40 to 50 mils. Oh, really? Um, so I didn't realise it was that much. Yeah, so send, a, send at least a couple of, uh, of pots. Um, interestingly, the guidelines say, though, that if you're sending over more than 60 mils, there's no sort of excessive benefit with that. So around 50 mils is is what you should aim to do. Um, so this is what we had. We left the drain in. Um, 
another important thing to highlight is how much fluid you take off at once. Yes. And how long can you leave drains in for? Yes. Because I'm never quite sure. Yeah. Um, so we put the drain in um, and we drained about 1.5 litres uh, pretty instantly, actually. Um, I think in the time it took me for me to clean up and wash my hands, it had already reached that mark. Okay. Uh, and 1.5 litres is actually the cutoff. Yeah. So you shouldn't be taking more than that uh, in one go the first time you put a drain in because the patient is at risk of uh, refractory pulmonary edema. So if you think that he's been sitting at home for three weeks with half his lung deflated, uh, and then all of a sudden it's going to inflate very quickly, um, that has uh, quite a significant change on oncotic pressures there. Um, so he could actually conversely feel a little bit more breathless despite you putting a drain in. Um, now that could be quite scary if you're seeing someone very breathless or more breathless despite you putting a drain in to make them better uh, because you'll instantly be thinking, have I actually gone too far with a needle despite being ultrasound guided? Um, so that's why 1.5 litres is the cutoff. Um, you're then advised to hold it for about an hour, leap, so clamp the drain. Yeah. Um, or frequently now we have three-way taps to drain, so turn the tap off. <laughs> um, but after afterwards, uh, you can open it to free drainage. However, just a note of caution again, I have seen some cases where, again, if you go beyond 1.5 litres after that, people can sometimes feel a bit uncomfortable. So uh, it's worth just letting you know the nurse who's going to be there, the HCA, that you know they've got a chest drain, please monitor for symptoms of, of distress or coughing, etc. And I'm glad you said, how long do you leave it in for? Because I'm always, it's different. You know, it's, I never get, a, it's always difficult to know, isn't it? Yeah, I think if it was, so not in this case, but in a sort of paraneumonic effusion or empyema, you want to see that the infection is cleared. Okay. Um, so you can actually live it in for a number of days. Um, with this case, um, I, well, the team kind of aimed for dryness. So we wanted to get rid of all that fluid to make him feel better send off what we can uh, for diagnostics. The reason for that is because if this is a malignant infusion, there's a high chance that it could recur. Um, so we wanted to kind of assess the response. So, okay, if we take the drain out, is it going to reaccumulate? Um, if it does, is he suitable for talc pyridesis? Um, if it's very far advanced or he's not suitable for that, do we have to consider leaving a drain in? So converting that drain into an indwelling catheter. Um, and essentially, this this is the the three main approaches that the uh, guidelines suggest for malignant pleural effusions. So you, you can either drain to dryness, um, put talc pyridesis in, or have indwelling catheters. Of course, doing nothing, watching and waiting, is also an option. Yeah. So there, there may be some cases who don't have recurring effusions, um, or there may be other signs and symptoms that take precedent. Um, in terms of when, how, in terms of how to assess dryness so if there's less than 150 mils um in 24 hours then that is sort of a, a ballpark figure that that we can work with um but in the, the modern day nhs there's so many other things that are going on you know he, he'll have a staging ct scan and he'll have you know pet scan and wait for the diagnostics to come back so it's very much an mdt decision um i won't go in, into it today but for the complex cases um obviously you'll inform your cardiothoracics team particularly if you've got very difficult empyemas or paraneumonic effusions they may need to have um, either some fibrinolytic therapy 
um, that you insert through the drain uh, or frequently sometimes decortication. But those are for very advanced cases and, and unlikely to be seen on, on a post-state ward round. Um, again, I'll just highlight one other thing which I learned from this. Was So normally when you're uh, wanting uh, to, you know, to, to prevent recurrence and things, so I've obviously mentioned talc pleuridesis, um, I've always been giving advice to say don't give NSAIDs. Don't give anti-inflammatories whilst you're, you know, trying to treat these people because ultimately you want a degree of inflammation uh, to occur with the pleura so that it sticks together. That's interesting. I'd never heard that. Yeah. That makes complete sense. <laughs> um, but interestingly, uh, and much to my displeasure, the guidelines have said that there's no human evidence that that actually has a difference. It's very anecdotal, is it? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, and it's only studies in animals that have suggested that that is as the way forward. Um, so that's uh, what we have. Um, before I tell you how this case ends, uh, my interesting fact for the day uh, was actually to kind of explore who put the first chest drain in. You know, it's a pretty complex procedure. Um, obviously, we've got all the tools to do it quite efficiently now. Um, but back in 460 uh, <laughs> um, AD, Hippocrates was actually the first person to uh, put a chest drain in uh, for what sounds like an empyema. Hmm. Um, so he's got a lot to answer for, hasn't he? He for, does. Uh, what, I wonder what he used. Uh, very blunt instruments. <laughs> um, but anyway, as chest drains, the, the point is chest drains have, have been around for a long time. Yeah. Um, they've gone from you know blunt dissections and our surgical colleagues are very adept at putting surgical chest drains, yeah. so large bore drains for um, either trauma um, or very difficult to reach infections. Um, however, for us medics on the shop floor, um, it's recommended that using the Seldinger technique yeah. uh, under ultrasound guidance is the way forward. Now, just to end in, on, on this story, and, and ultimately this is why I brought this case today. Um, so from A&E Acute Medicine, this chat was actually admitted um, under the respiratory team. Um, the diagnosis was, was pretty clear and it had confirmed um, a lung malignancy. Um, 50 to 60% of all malignant effusions um, are either lung or breast cancer. And the median survival presenting with a unilateral pleural effusion is only between 3 to 12 months. Um, and he actually passed away within two weeks of admission. Yeah. And although we had done all the tests, you know, the management was correct, etc. Um, it just struck me because we should never lose sight of that. This is the first presentation of a very advanced cancerous process uh -huh. um not that we would have done anything differently but it's just made me think that if i see this case again um the patient has to be on board with exactly what we're looking for Abs i agree right yeah. from the start um because although he you know was in for two weeks it's still a shock to hear this yeah. um and with those sort of we know lung cancer has a poor prognosis anyway but it's just to remember if you're coming in with a malignant effusion that's already cancer has a very advanced stage and you should be thinking about advanced care planning and, 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 and what the way forward is from there. And I think that highlights to me is, um, we, we're all guilty of it, is shared decision-making. And actually, in this gentleman, you know, he had PET scans, he had loads of, in, you know, CTs, lots of tests. Did he actually need them in the fact that we knew it was very, you, you sort of knew it was very advanced he was very frail and unkempt, etc. when he came in, actually maybe recognition 
that it was probably advanced malignancy, end of life care may have been yeah, more appropriate. Absolutely, and, and and this is just one case, and obviously take things on a case by case course, basis. Of course, yeah. Um, but there will be people who probably more frail than him, um, where it's very much not suitable to admit them with a chest drain in. Um, with him, I think it was it was reasonable, but you're absolutely right. There are others where a chest drain is not going to achieve anything. Um, and if they're not compromised, it's not going to relieve any of their symptoms, um, then think twice about it. So, yeah, a bit of a, a sad end, but it's uh, unfortunately a very common thing uh, that we see. However, it must be highlighted that not every individual who has an advanced malignancy, as the gentleman did in our case, would have such a poor prognosis. He was very frail, he had a very poor poor performance status, and therefore his prognosis was poor. However, some individuals with the same condition would be very suitable for novel therapeutics, which may prolong the life further and actually improve the prognosis. So I think that, yes, I get your point that this gentleman was recognised it was very poor and dying in advanced care planning was appropriate. That isn't appropriate in all patients. And we don't want to be too negative in all these cases. Thank you very much. That was a really interesting case. I've definitely taken away some learning points from that. I think number one, lights criteria, which as soon as you've told, told me, oh, I do forget it. So I have to keep reading it, but it's always good to relearn it. Um, and I think secondly, and really, really important for everybody to take away is we really need to think about the tests that we're doing and making sure we're doing the right test on the right patient at the right time and not over-investigating and conversely not under-investigating. Yeah. So what about yourself? What's your key uh, learning so, point? So mine's just come through reflecting actually is that it's yeah. it's it's very easy on the take to get a referral, go along with it, uh, but it just shows the importance of why it's useful to have a look at some investigations as well. Yes. Um, whilst, you know, there, there wasn't really anything controversial here, but, you know, just the chest x-ray, a little bit more detailed history goes from a diagnosis of typical COPD exacerbation to... This is a malignancy. So, you know, both are quite respiratory and acute medicine related, but the management of both is very different. And also there's a person at the centre of this. So we're often referred a chest X-ray. Oh, we've got a we've got a patient with, you know, plural effusion. Actually, we haven't got a patient, we have a person. Sixty-six yes. year old man. And it's we Absolutely. have to always put the patient at our centre. Yeah, this is a chap who came in and was told he had an infection. It'll take a couple of days to a guy that never left hospital. Yeah. Thank you for listening to the RCP Medicine Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet us at rcplondon. And we look forward to hearing from you. Goodbye.